This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is speaking with historian Jill Liddington, whose book, Female Fortune, a study of the life and times of 19th century English diarist Ann Lister, inspired Sally Wainwright to create the TV series Gentleman Jack. I have to say that when I was approached about having you on the show, I just might have let out a squeal of delight that startled my neighbors. Uh, (laughs) The blog and podcast have touched on Ann Lister's life from a number of angles previously, so I'm very interested in your thoughts as a historian, viewing her within her historic context. So our listeners are likely to be most familiar with Ann Lister because of her romantic and sexual relationships with other women. But your first book about Ann Lister, Female Fortune, is much more wide-ranging and strongly focused on the economic and political context of Lister's life. What was it that first attracted you to studying Lister and her writings? I lived one mile away from where Anne Lister lived. I moved to Halifax in 1980, and I found myself living about a mile from Shibden Hall, where Anne Lister had much earlier lived. And I gradually got sucked into the Anne Lister world. And once you get sucked in and gripped by Anne Lister and her diaries, there's no letting go. She's absolutely uh, hypnotic. One of the things that fascinates me in your analysis is looking at how Anne Lister was constantly inventing and managing her own identity. And not just around her romantic life, but but also in terms of her family history and, and the image of her family heritage. So I'm curious... What is your assessment about the balance between, you know, the candor of her diaries and the self-mythologizing? Can we really consider her a reliable narrator of the details of her own life? I'm not sure she was self-mythologizing. And I don't know what many of the people listening will have read, but it may well be some of um, one of Helena Whitbread's two books, which is about the earlier Anne Lister. And what is important for everybody to understand is that Anne Lister's life changed quite a lot. She started off in in quite a sort of middle-class family up, upbringing, in, mainly in, in Halifax. And she had living up above her middle-class ordinary Halifax house, her aunt Anne and Uncle James, both unmarried, up at Shibden Hall. And they invited her to come and live at Shibden Hall in 1815, when she was in her mid-twenties. So suddenly, almost overnight, her life changed. And she was living in no longer in a middle-class house, but in a, a landed gentry estate and hall. And then in 1826, so 11 years later, her uncle James died and he was a canny man and he could see that Anne Lister was incredibly clever and brainy and and could set her her mind to anything. And he left uh, Shibden Hall and its estates to 
his very talented niece. Her father and her aunt had the right to live there and receive a small amount of the rents in his will. But she inherited Chibden Hall. And then when she returned from her trips to Paris and elsewhere um, and came back home in 1832, um, she really set her mind and her brilliant mind to improving shabby Shipton and turning it into something that really was more than just a minor gentry farmhouse, but into something that was really very elegant and important. So I'm not sure that Anne Lister herself changed or that she's mythologizing anything. I think her social class changed mainly due to her unmarried aunt and uncle in, in Shipton Hall. That's a slightly different view of it than than I was envisioning, because I know one of the things I was reading in in your book was how she became very self conscious about, you know, her family heritage. That the 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 fa- the idea that the family had been living in this in this house for you know centuries, and that they had this this grand, you know, I, I don't know the correct terms for the class, the exact class status. But what you can call. Um, is, is minor landed gentry inheriting ancient acres, uh, about 400 acres of Shipton Hall. And where you are right is that Anne Lister did sculpt and remodel some of her family history, but it's a very minor bit. It's a, a very minor, um, but it's an interesting little detail, which is that one or two of her one of her uncles, um, and going back a generation before that, had been involved in the textile industry, in commerce. And now Anne had inherited Shibden Hall with its ancient acres. She didn't want to have any reference at all, any piece of ev- evidence that that was where the listers came from and had actually had done very well. So she would burn her uncle, one of her uncle's books of uh, samples of material, because what she wanted to do was to establish, beyond a shadow of doubt, her place in the social class system, of which England was (laughs) so so strong, which was a member of the landed gentry. Yes, and and reading comments she has on other people in the community. She does have this very strong, you know, and this is, I, I understand, you know, I'm an American. I don't have this, the same embedment in, in the, the class system, but, but she does have this very strong feeling about, you know, who it's appropriate to associate with and, you know, who, who her, her equals are. And in, in some parts of the diary that comes across where she's attracted to a woman, but then she sort of feels that, well, the you know this person really couldn't be a, a partner for me because she's 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 just lower class. I think that's absolutely right, and we cannot understand um, Anne Lister, particularly Anne Lister in the eighteen thirties, which is the period my two books um, have focused on, um, unless we understand the social class system of of Britain. And yes, she would not form a relationship very happily or sustain a relationship with somebody who came from a a lower social class than her. And that would include professional people. So a lawyer's daughter or a school headmaster's daughter, for example. No. Um, And when she came back uh, to Shipton, to live in Shipton, 
in spring 1832, which is where really my story starts off um, in my two books. Um, and she came back because she'd been thwarted by yet one more woman's conventional marriage plans. This was Via Hobart, who was going to get conventionally heterosexually married. And Anne was just so uh, humiliated by this. She trudged back to Shabby Shibden and she decided she would remodel Shibden in the um, style of some of her more elite friends. And she was very good at making elite friends. She, socially, she was very uh, astute. And she looked around the Halifax area as to who might be a possible life partner, because she too, like Vera Hobart, wanted a life partner. And she, uh, her eyes lit on uh, young Anne Walker, who was about a dozen years younger than her, and lived on the same side of Halifax. Um, Shibden, have you been to Halifax? I have not. Oh, do come, do come. I, I may, uh, may make a little pilgrimage next year when I'm, uh, I'll am i be in Glasgow for the World Science Fiction Convention. So. Right, well, it's, it's only a, a few hundred miles south <laughs> of Glasgow. <laughs> um, so um, Shibden Hall is a, about a, a mile out of um Halifax, higher up, and then Anne Walker's estate called the Cronest Estate at Lightcliffe was uh, about another mile or so further further out of Halifax, and it was larger, it had more tenants, and this did not inherit many tenants. It had more tenants, and it, its rentals, the rents paid regularly by the Cronest Estate tenants, was far larger than Anne Lister's income from her estate. So she could see uh, Anne Walker, uh, this younger younger woman in her late 20s, living on her own on the edge of the Cronest estate with only an elderly aunt for her company. Her parents had died. Her brother had very recently died. And her sister had married um, a Scotsman who... <laughs> lived as far north, far further north in Scotland than, than Glasgow. So she was very isolated. And Anne Lister didn't waste a minute. She just set about wooing wealthy neighbouring heiress Anne Walker. And after wooing, seducing. And after seducing, marrying. And that takes us to 1834, which is probably the, the sort of pinnacle <laughs> incident in a female fortune. Uh -huh. And I understand that your new book is then focusing very much on the relationship, the marriage that they had. Do you want to talk about that a bit more? Yes, absolutely. Well, in both books, I've focused quite a bit on the, the coded sections, that is the sections about, mainly uh, sections, passages about Anne Lister's uh, romantic and sexual relationships, mainly with Anne Walker as well as how she ran her estate and politics and so on. And likewise, in As Good as a Marriage. So Anne Lister and Anne and Walker got married as far as they could as two women um, at a little church in near York Minster in the centre of York called Goodrum Gate. And that was at Easter 1834. It was obviously a private ceremony. Um, nobody else would recognise it as marriage. It wasn't recognised as marriage by either the church or the state. But to Anne Lister and to a large extent Anne Walker, 
it was as near as they could get to a uh, lesbian marriage. To begin with, when Anne Walker moved, uh, she left her Cronest house, her home, and moved the mile or so to go and live at Shibden Hall with the Lister family. That's Anne's elderly father, her elderly aunt, and her very irksome sister, younger sister, Marion. So from autumn 1834 till autumn 1836, they were all there together with the, with the servants serving the Lister family. And then in May 1836, her father died, quite elderly, uh, almost uh, very soon afterwards, almost immediately afterwards, Anne Lister uh, ensured that her sister Marianne, who was so irksome, uh, would no longer live at Shibden. I won't say she was banished, because that's a harsh word, but she, uh, her sister Marianne departed and never returned. And then a month or two after that, in, in autumn 1836, her beloved aunt Anne died too. She's quite elderly. So essentially from the 18, autumn 1836 onwards, Anne and Anne and Lister and Anne Walker were living as a married couple in Anne's eyes on their own at Shivden with just the servants. And what I try and examine in As Good as a Marriage uh, was what is as good as a heterosexual marriage and what were heterosexual marriages like in the early 19th century England. Yeah, and that's a, a, a key element because people who read historic romance novels get a very skewed view of what typical marriages were like, um, and especially in the in the early 19th century, which is a very popular setting. And, and you know, the, the very much the focus on, you know, love and romance and attraction, you know, is not the baseline for heterosexual marriage at that time. And and so when you're comparing the marriage of two women to to you know the marriage of a man and a woman, you can't compare it to the fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the writers who we particularly think of um, as romantic writers um, in the early 19th century is Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, etc., etc. And then the Bronte, the Bronte sisters with Jane Eyre ending, um, Reader, I Married Him. But at least, well, one of the Bronte sisters, one of the uh, less well-known than Charlotte and Emily was Anne Bronte and her novel Tenant of Wildfell Hall tells a very different story of what a conventional marriage could be like. It was written a, a decade after Anne died. Um, so it's a little bit later, but not significantly later. And it tells a bitter, harsh portrait of a conventional heterosexual marriage where the man... Uh, the husband possessed all the power and the woman's space for freedom or decision-making or, or making a, a powerful decisions was minimal. And I think it, <laughs> it's really worth going back to look at what life was like for married women, conventionally, the majority, vast majority of married women in, in the first half of the 19th century. Divorce was virtually impossible. I mean, 
the tenant of Wildfell Hall had um, Helen Huntington had the option of divorce would have been very different. She didn't. It wasn't an option because marriage was sacred. There was the only tiny little legal empowerment for married women was the Infant Custody Act in the 1830s. But if you separated from your husband, you could have a custody possession of your child while they were still an infant. And that was well fought over. But things like married women's property rights or divorce laws, let alone votes women, was way into the future, way into the future. And that's the context. Uh, it's the context of the tenant of Welfare Hall that we have to situate Anne and Anne's very unconventional marriage in, I think. So we have a context in which Marriage is about property. It's about setting yourself up for for the structure of your life. For heterosexual marriage, it's about producing heirs for your family. And now you have two women entering into a marriage that was very much a social and economic contract, but without that legal framework that would bind them together if things didn't work out. I think that's right. In a sense, in a way, gave them, or certainly gave Anne Lister certain certain freedoms, because male homosexuality, as you probably know, was already framed within some sort of legal constraints, and those would get harsher with the 1885 legislation. But it was still the only example I know of from Halifax, um, from about this period, a little bit later, of a male homosexual. He was blackmailed by his valet and it came to court, et cetera, et cetera, and was very nasty. Whereas there was no legal restrictions or legal recognition of Anne and Anne's lesbian relationship, unlike heterosexual marriage, which was all fenced around with all manner of, of conventions and so on and so forth. So they they did ironically live live in a space that was legally quite free, but they had to be very careful. They were very careful how they dressed and Walker would always dress in a very uh, feminine way and Lister less so, but she never dressed like a man. She never, ever cross-dressed. She always dressed very respectably. Um, obviously, she put on sort of more rougher clothes if she was striding out across her estate to go and collect some rents or give one of her tenants a talking to. But when she was going out into Halifax or going to York or going in a carriage to visit Anne's relations, she looked very respectable. So they did have, ironically, some freedom, but it was, in a way, a sort of slightly scary kind of freedom. And how I express it sometimes is they were out in the world without a script. There were no, there was no laws, but there were no etiquette books. And the, the etiquette books for heterosexual marriage and courtship abounded, but for lesbian relationships, courtship, marriage, no. And that gets into an interesting question that you know has occurred to me as I'm reading the diaries, and not so much the sections on her relationship with, with Ann Walker, but, but more in the lead up, well, lead up is, is very teleological, uh, you know, in, in the period when she hasn't gotten entirely over Mariana yet, but she hasn't hooked up with, with Ann Walker yet. And she's trying out a number of relationships. 
And you know, in those coded entries, we see a pretty extensive network of women that she she flirted with, she courted with, she made reference to having had you know intimate relationships with them. And I think this is a fascinating paradox of history that we have we know more about male homosexuals in the historic record because it was illegal. But because we have this very unfiltered internal view of Anne's everyday life, we can see that she she's not unique. She's not isolated. She is encountering many women who either overtly or through, you know, sort of coded speech indicate that they are in or interested in female same-sex relationships. And I think that is one of the wonderful things about the diaries is it gives us this glimpse in how Anne was not special and unique. She was part of an entire community, as it were. She wasn't unique, but so many of the women that she flirted with or had sexual relationships with then went and married, you know, did the conventional thing and married a man, of which Marianna Lawton is a prime example, but also Fia Cameron and others. But I think what is absolutely remarkable about Anne is that she wrote it all down. Her diaries are, we now calculate, we had originally thought they were two million words in the 1980s. And then when I did my calculations in 1990, I got it to four million words and I was aghast. Four million words, my goodness. And it's now they're digitalized. The calculations by the archivists are that it's much nearer five million words, of which roughly one sixth is in code. And that tells us about most intimate romantic sexual relationships. But Anne Lister wasn't unique except in as far as she wrote this diary, a large section of which, about a sixth perhaps, uh, was in her own private code, that secret code that nobody else could understand. So suddenly we have this door opening, this window opening on what relationships were like for someone like Anne Lister. And that's one of the reasons why Anne Lister's diaries are being taken seriously now. So you probably know that in 2011, UNESCO, i.e. the cultural branch of the United Nations International, UNESCO, at long last in 2011, recognised um, the Anne Lister diaries in their memory of the world record. And that puts her on the par with the other great English diarist of much earlier, Samuel Pepys, and quite rightly, he wrote much less in code and wrote about a sixth in code. But they're both remarkable people. And thank you, Anne, for keeping her diaries. Yes. And and I think we have to thank Anne for keeping her diaries in code, because that's part of the whole chain of the chain of unique events that does make the diaries special, that, that she wrote about her life, that she wrote in code so that the casual observer would not say, Oh my God! Th- you know this is this is sinful. This must be burned, so that her relatives did not recognize how it might reflect on the family. And as I understand it, also the diaries were like put in a like a hidden cabinet or something. And then we were lucky that the building wasn't 
torn down or didn't burn down. <laughs> we certainly were. Shivden Hall is a wonderful building and it's a museum now. What happened is that Anne Lister, as you know, died in 1840 and uh, Anne Walker inherited Shivden as a life interest during her own lifetime. Um, and I won't go into all that troubled troubled history. And the people who then in, inherited Shivden from Anne Walker was an indirect indirect descendants of Anne Lister. Obviously, she had no direct descendants, but um, the Listers from Swansea came and moved into Shipton. And luckily, their son, John Lister, was a scholar. And he was fascinated by the diaries. And in the 1880s, um, he began transcribing them and publishing large sections of them week by week in the Halifax Guardian, the weekly local paper. But of course he couldn't crack the code and he could see it was a secret code, but he couldn't crack it. So John Lister published, I think 121 episodes each week in the Halifax Guardian of Anne Lister's diaries, the handwritten sections, not the coded sections, because he couldn't at that stage yet crack the code. And he was very interested in politics. And he starts off with the 1837 general election and how Anne and Anne doorstepped their tenants to persuade them persuade <laughs> them to vote blue. John Lister was really puzzling over this um, secret code. And he um, was working with a fellow scholar locally called Arthur Burrell, who was a Bradford antiquarian. John Lister was a Halifax antiquarian. And much later, after John Lister's death, so we're now way ahead into the 1930s, Arthur Burrell wrote to the Halifax librarian, and this is what he wrote. Up to that time, we knew nothing of the coded alphabet. I distinctly remember taking a volume of the diaries back to Shipton and telling Mr. Lister that I was certain of two letters, H and E. We then examined one of the boxes behind the panels and halfway down the collection of deeds we'd found on a scrap of paper these words, in God is my. We at once saw that the word must be hope and the H and E corresponded with my guess. The word hope was in code. With these four letters almost certain, we began very late at night to find the remaining clues. We finished at 2 a.m. in the morning. And he goes on. The part written in the code turned out after examination to be entirely unpublishable. Mr. Lister was distressed, but he, he refused to take my advice, which was that he should burn all 26 volumes. He was, as you know, an antiquarian, and my suggestion seemed sacrilege, which perhaps it was. And then he ended uh, how the coded passages presented and I quote again, an intimate account of homosexual practices amongst Miss Lister and her many friends. And Arthur Burrell added, this very unsavoury document contains evidence that these friendships were criminal. They were criminal because the law didn't touch lesbian relationships. There'd been an attempt in uh, just after the First World War, but the law didn't touch them. So uh, Arthur Burrell was misleading there. But I think what what that passage from Arthur Burrell writing to the Halifax librarian, well, years later, decades later, and indeed after John Lister's death in 1933, is 
what a struggle it was to decode Anlister's coded passages and how startling it was. I think this happened in 1892. So that's only seven years after the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act, which further criminalised male homosexual activity. And in all likelihood, John Lister himself was a homosexual. So the whole atmosphere was very tense. And there was a, a, a feeling, a belief, a fear that homosexuality was somehow inherited and it would taint the Lister genes. So the whole thing was very, very fraught. And we don't get any any work on the coded sections of the diary till after the Second World War. And if I'm remembering correctly, somebody has set up a, a crowdsource for people to help with the decoding where you can you can take a scan of a page and do your bit to help transcribe the coded sections is that still going on yes they're know? called the code breakers and it's organized by west yorkshire archives service the, the halifax branch of it and they're working very assiduously and it's very hard work on both the coded sections and of course the main handwritten sections and those in a way are even more difficult to transcribe because a and lister's handwriting wasn't very legible when she was writing in a hurry and b she abbreviated everything so halifax comes out as hooks hx and Anne walker as a dash and Mariana Lawton as M dash and so on and so forth. And unless you live in, in and around Halifax, the number of local place names and people's names is completely baffling. But they're making a, a good go of it and uh, more power to their elbow. Yes, the the dealing with archives and handwritten records uh, is amazing, you know, mentally backbreaking work. My, my mother uh, transcribed and edited my great-great-grandfather's uh, diaries from the American Civil War. And then I'm working on further editing them and annotating them and deciphering what the references are to. And, you know, that that's much easier, I imagine, than something, you know, even half a century earlier. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I was working on the early 1830s diaries for Female Fortune, which came out in 1998, I so strained my eyes because we didn't have anything digital then. We, do you remember my, microfilm readers and the printouts from microfilm readers, no fault of anybody's, just the time, was that it was dark grey writing on pale grey paper. And I, my the strain on my eyes, and I've got a shoebox full of pairs of glasses that I went through in the 1990s. I mean, I started wearing glasses when I was a teenager, but somehow they speeded up when I got to the 1990s, and it was all Anne Lister's fault, because she was such a compelling diarist, but it was so difficult to read from the uh, microfilm printer reader. Yes. Well, thank goodness for advances in technology. Yes. So, so let's get back to the marriage between Ann Lister and Ann Walker. Um, what was it like on a day-to-day -day basis? I know that, you know, 
it feels from the outside like it wasn't always happening. <laughs> I think that's kind of roughly it. I mean, like any conventional settled heterosexual couple, they had very pleasant evenings together in front of the far side at Shibden. They would read each other's letters. To, um, they'd read books together. They'd read the newspaper and read little or big bits out to each other. They'd write their diaries because Anne Walker was writing a diary um, right through this period. We, we've only discovered one small volume of it from the early 1830s, but hopefully we'll discover the rest. They also enjoyed travelling. They travelled to the Dales, which is in Yorkshire Dales, going north from Halifax up um, past Keithley, which is very beautiful. And they travelled to France in 1838, which is where I end as good as a marriage, when they go down to the Pyrenees. But in the coded sections, there are some very sobering passages. And when I first read them, I thought, oh, my goodness. This is so harsh, what Anne Lister was saying in code in her secret code about Anne Walker, uh, how impossible she was to live with her. How, how can I get rid of her? Maybe she'll go. She really hasn't got a, a she doesn't quite use this phrase, a sort of first class mind as I have. And she found Anne Walker very frustrating. Um, there were silences, there were silences at meals, which is a, a really awful thing. Not that you want to talk the whole time during meals, but you don't want the whole thing to be silent. There were tensions, there were quarrels, there were locked bedroom doors, which if we go back to um, Anne Bronte's Tenant of Wildfell Hall, we know the significance of that. But I've been thinking about it a bit more recently, working on and finishing off as good as a marriage, and I'm not sure that some of the harsh thoughts that Anne Lister had about Anne Walker and which she wrote in code were necessarily what she did or even what she really absolutely believed. So she said at one point, Anne Walker deserves a good whipping. Another point, she said, I'm going to go and buy a rod, giving her a, a smacking her with a rod. These sort of things never happen. Um, it was just Anne's, Anne Lister's sense of frustration with Anne Walker. Anne Walker had the money, um, and Anne Lister now had access to Anne Walker's considerable income stream. But what else did Anne Walker really have? And you get a sense, and each reader will make up their own mind as they read as good as a marriage, and particularly the last half, is that increasingly as the 1830s go further on that Anne Lister was more interested in her legacy than she was in her marriage to Anne Walker. She was more interested in sustaining and enriching the legacy of Shibden Hall than she was in a marriage to Anne Walker. She knew she couldn't produce heirs and that was one of the reasons why she found Marianne her younger sister, so irksome, because had Marianne come back from East Yorkshire where she'd gone, she might have married and she could have produced an heir and that, that would have provided um, much hard work and possibly fun for local lawyers to fight that out, sister with sister. But she took her, the, the, the feeling of her legacy very seriously. And this, I think, some people would say that's very harsh, 
But I think we just have to think of her as a member of the minor landed gentry. And that is what members of the gentry did. The, the land, the traditional land where the Listers had always lived for generations and generations, nothing was more important. Um, I'd be interested what other readers think about, think of this when they get towards the end of the book. And I wonder how much of, you know, the harsher comments in the diary, if this is just, you know, this is a way to vent, that it's it's a way of dealing with those thoughts. And and maybe that was how, I mean, this is speculation. Maybe she she vented in her diary rather than saying things in person. Yes, I think so. It was it, it was an emotional outlet. She was venting her frustrations with her coded Coded, coded lines in the diary. It was perhaps what she was thinking or feeling at that moment, but she still, you know, they still had very nice times together. They particularly, there's two things that made their life together very, very nice, meant they really enjoyed each other's company. One was having a common enemy. That was a real bond. Uh, one was William Priestley and Anne Walker's elder cousin who created inheritance problems and disputes and they could get together and, and really hate him and, and do him down. And the other was, of course, politics, because Anne Walker was as fervent a true blue, i.e. Tory, what we now call Conservative Party, as was Anne Lister. And Anne Walker would go around and stand right on the doorstep of her many, many tenants and insist that they voted blue for the uh, the Workleys, the Honourable Stuart Workleys, or else, just as much as Anne, Anne Lister did. And that feeling of, uh, of, of hatred of the Whigs, which you might now call the Liberals, or the Radicals, or even worse, we might now call the Socialists, brought them together. And they, they did have a nice time enjoying each other's company in bed. But... The, this friction underneath is always there as we get into the late 1830s, particularly when they were at Shibden, because after breakfast, Anne would stride out. She had got to go and see her land steward um, and sort something out about one of the tenancies. She had to go up to the Walker coal mine, named after Anne Walker, or down to the much more important coal mine at Listerwick and see whether it was producing income yet where the coal was being produced and she would leave Anne Walker behind at Shibden who had sort of domestic things to do but who was just lonely and she would go often on her pony each afternoon to go and visit her elderly aunt who still lived up at the Walker estate at the Cliff Hill but she was lonely whereas Anne Lister was never really lonely and I do quote some of her letters to her elite correspondence in As Good As A Marriage. I think I quote more of them than I do in Female Fortune, where she's just flattering these titled women from elderly Lady Stuart, Lady Gordon, Lady Stuart de Russet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, flattering them. And I'm so looking forward to seeing you in London and um, do hope I can visit your castle in <laughs> Scotland or whatever. And she was uh, a consummate snob and part of her social life was lived through letters. And then uh, where I end the book, where I end as good as a marriage, they're on their way down to London. They stay in London for a few days, getting on for a week. And Walker uh, goes to visit the dentist and she's imprisoned in the dentist's 
chair, whereas Anne Lister goes off in the coach to go and visit some of these elite elite women. And you can just see that Anne Lister is kind of living her correspondence with her elite friends. It was part of what she saw as her, her legacy, her social destiny. And then to end it on a high note, um, they travel to Paris where Anne Walker gets to see um, a, a, a reputable doctor for some of her ill health problems. And then they travel down to the spas of the hill, hillsides, mountainsides of the Pyrenees. And the spas are going to be good for Anne Walker's poorly health. And Anne Lister climbs Vigmeur with two local guides, two local French guides. And of course, Anne Lister's French is, I mean, she's bilingual, she's virtually bilingual. And she climbs Vigmeur, which is the highest peak in the French Pyrenees. And wow, Anne Lister. And that's the note on which I end, as good as a marriage. And then, of course, later, the two of them traveled um, was to, to the Caucasus Mountains, right? And that was where Anne Lister died. Yeah, that's right. To, they go to Russia. And through as good as a marriage, particularly the last half, Anne Lister is an, an inveterate reader. You know, if it's printed, she'll read it. Um, uh, particularly if it's, uh, you know, intellectually stimulating. And she's fascinated by Russia, absolutely fascinated. And she comes across this English explorer called Captain Cochrane, who in the earlier, a little bit earlier, 1820s, had written pedestrian travels, not pedestrian in the sense of boring, but pedestrian in the sense of one foot in front of another through Europe. Um, to Russia and on to Siberia and she's reading it she's reading it it's two volumes I mean I've I've started reading Captain Cochrane but I haven't got to the end of the second volume yet but he is very very I mean he has a lot of exciting adventures with being sort of having all his wealth money stolen from him by brigands in the middle of Europe but of course, because he's Captain Cochrane, he knows um, the man who's in the consulate at the next door, big city or town, who says, oh, Captain Cochrane, oh dear, you don't, don't look like you're wearing very much. Come on in and have a good meal. Would you like a glass of wine? And he, he knows all the right people. So it's absolutely up Anne Lister Street and it really inspires her. And she reads more of Captain Cochrane's pedestrian journeys in Russia than almost anything else. And then off they set. So stepping back a little bit from the being immersed in Anne Lister's life itself, the study of queer history has has always been plagued with this problem of you know, the, the desire to see oneself in the past and the desire, you know, the sometimes unfortunate desire to make equivalences between our modern identities and the identities of people in the past. So as a historian yourself, how do you see the balance between people being inspired to study and read about history because they're looking for those identifications versus you know not not trying to reshape the past into our own image? Yes, I mean I think people are very inspired particularly women in the LGBT community, are inspired by Anne Lister's diaries because they are so unique, particularly for that period and the detail they go into. I mean, she started writing them in 1806 and didn't finish and scarcely missed a day until her death in Russia 
1840. But then I hope those readers will begin to pause and think about the context, the historical context in which Anne Lister lived. And it was a fairly brutal time in some senses, particularly for working class families and particularly for women. So one of the things that people are most shocked about about Anne Lister is that she employed boys working in her coal mines. She had to. I mean, I don't. none of the other coal mine owners in Halifax wrote diaries, as far as I know, or in the same sort of detail. But it's, Anne Lister is quite clear that the, the coal seams in Halifax are very narrow. It's not like South Yorkshire or Durham or South Wales. It's a very narrow coal seams. So it's very it makes very good economic sense, financial sense, to send young boys, they would be teenagers, young, young teenagers, into these narrow uh, horizontal mines and then get them to pull corves, i.e. tubs of coal, with chains on all fours to the entrance. And... People are shocked that Anne Lister did this, but it, you couldn't be a coal mine owner in the Halifax area and make a profit out of coal, and why else would you do it, unless you employed sm uh, small boys. Some employed girls, but I don't think Anne Lister did. And as you know, Anne Lister died in 1840. And <laughs> two years later, 1842, the official government report on employment of children in the mines was published and shocked a polite society in what was now Victorian Britain. And there are a couple of pages in the report, two or three pages plus drawings of boys pulling these corves loaded with coal along these underground passages. And I think that's one of the things that most shocks people. But for Anne Lister, it was all part of a whole. We can be shocked because that report has come out saying you shouldn't employ children, boy, young boys uh, underground. It's just not humane. But that's how life was at the time. And the, the, the room for manoeuvre for working class families, the employment opportunities, uh, particularly for girls, what was there apart from being a domestic servant, were very, very limited. And uh, that does come across quite well, quite vividly in the diaries, as well as the sexual and romantic uh, passages in the code. Yes, there, there are any number of ways in which, from a modern perspective, one can look at Anne Lister and think, she wasn't exactly a, a nice person. No. But, but she doesn't have to be. She is herself. And just because we're looking for identification doesn't mean that we can can or have to expect, you know, perfection yeah. in in our historic icons. Yeah. Yes, she she was who she was. She was a fearless intellectual, a, an incredibly adventurous traveller, and above anything else, she was a magnificent diarist. She is up there in UNESCO's eyes i.e. internationalised with Samuel Pepys, who's the best known of um, English diarists, I would think it's fair to say. And we see her it all, warts and all, glory and all, in the 1830s in female fortune and as good as a marriage. So I hope people listening would like to read one or both of those.
And that sounds like a great place to wrap up this interview. So for people who want to know more about your research and your books, where would they find you online? Um, Just go to Google and type in Jill Liddington. And unlike a lot of people, there seems to be nobody else called Jill Liddington. And what you will have is the top line is all about Anne Lister. And I think I think you'll find it quite it's quite useful as an introduction. So I have an, a web page called Anlister Audiovisual. And thanks to MUP, my publisher, we've got a five minute author video, MUP author video. And if anybody wants an easy place to start and have got a spare five minutes and maybe a cup of tea or a glass of wine, that's where I suggest you start and enjoy watching. And I will put a link directly to that in the show notes. So thank you so much, Jill Liddington, for spending your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Well, thank you very much, Heather, for your interesting questions. It's given me reasons to think, and I hope that the people, everybody listening, will enjoy it as well. I'm sure they will. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 